my name is Dimitri. I'm Isabella. Alexander. I'm Zali. I'm Teddy. And I'm 23. And I'm 12, 16 years old. Almost 28,000 young people. Aged between 12 and 24. Are homeless in Australia. Earlier on any given night. Did you know that a survey of young people on youth allowance found that 9 in 10 skip meals and 1 in 3 have withdrawn their studies because of lack of funds? Did you know that 1 in 3 young people aged 15 to 24 who seek help from homelessness services identify as Indigenous? Did you know the youth unemployment rate is now at 13.9%? More than double the national average. In the spirit of reconciliation, Why Foundations acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Young and Homeless podcast brought to you by Why Foundations, New South Wales peak body for youth homelessness. Why Foundations supports services who support young people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness. My name is Pam Barker and I'm the CEO of Why Foundations and I will be your host and I'm honoured to take you on the journey while I interview passionate and dedicated human beings who want to end youth homelessness in Australia. In this podcast series, we will chat with some amazing speakers who are politicians, government workers, service providers, researchers, academics, and people with a lived experience of homelessness. We will tackle some of the important issues faced by children and young people at risk of or who are experiencing homelessness in Australia. Right, welcome everybody to Wire Foundation's webinar today. We will be discussing our new research and advocacy report, Young in Trouble and with Nowhere to Go, Homeless Adolescents, Pathways into and Out of Detention in New South Wales. I know we've got a large crowd joining us from work, home, wherever you are in Australia and internationally. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited and looking forward to presenting our report findings to you all. We've got a very vast range of humans from many different sectors, many different backgrounds to hear really important information about young people who come in contact with the juvenile justice system and homelessness. But before we get underway today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on which the lands on which I am on today. I'm on Gadigal land and I want to pay my respects to those elders past, present, emerging and anyone who identifies as Aboriginal who joins us today. I know many of you are from many different lands, both within Australia and possibly internationally. And I want to extend the respects to where you are as well today. We've got a stellar lineup today in regards to speakers. So I hope you all learn something new and get an understanding of the details of this report. We've got our first amazing human, Lisa Thompson, is with us today. Lisa is the residential coordinator at Teldamundi Youth Service, and she'll be giving us a really nice internal view of the struggles young people have from a service delivery perspective. We have Professor Chochi Ravolo joining us, who is the Chair of Social Work and Policy Studies in the Sydney School of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. He'll be joining us, giving us a lovely academic viewpoint of his experiences and what he knows as an expert with young people and in this space. And we've got one of my staff members, Dr Elizabeth Watts. It is an honour to have her on staff. She is our Senior Researcher and 
Policy Manager here at Y Foundations, who will present the findings of our report um, alongside our panellists. I would now like to invite Lizzie to come and present the findings of the report. Thank you, Lizzie. Thanks, Pam, and thank you to everyone else on the panel. I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm coming at you today from Wiradjuri land in the Central West, which is where I've been bunkered down since well before lockdown, and I'd like to pay respect to Elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge the members of our Aboriginal reference group for this project, and I'd like to thank the research team, which includes Olivia Yinelli, Shoshana Booth, Natalia Gale, and myself. A big thanks goes to our research participants. Now, we spoke to 143 people for this project. Those are people who are working across the children's court as magistrates and solicitors, across the juvenile justice system as caseworkers in youth justice centres and youth justice community centres and across the youth homelessness system and in other NGOs that support those young people who come in contact with the criminal justice system. So there is absolutely no way that I could possibly summarise all the findings that we had from these interviews, particularly if you ever want to hear from the other amazing panel members that we have. Um, But I'm just going to try and give you a taste of some of the key findings from our report, which I really hope will encourage you to read the whole thing if you haven't already. So I'm going to jump right in with a key fact from the report that probably won't surprise you. And that is that homeless young people are vastly overrepresented in the youth justice system in New South Wales. So the data around youth justice and homelessness isn't great. And we make a number of recommendations in our report for improving the data collection and reporting. But the most recent survey suggests that of under 18 year olds who are in detention, a whopping 17% had experienced some form of homelessness in just the last four weeks. So we were trying to understand the journey that these young adolescents take into detention. And in doing so, my team developed a rather intimidating flowchart. And there will absolutely be no pop quiz at the end. So this flowchart was our attempt to understand the incredibly complex system that homeless adolescents move through following their apprehension by the New South Wales Police. So it shows some of the various decisions and laws that lead them to being held in unsentenced detention by the police or unsentenced detention by the children's court or sentenced detention following a sentencing procedure by the children's court. So before we look into those pathways, it's important to recognise that many of the factors that lead to overrepresentation of homeless young people in the criminal justice system begin well prior to this first, to this chart. So they account for why homeless young people are in fact more likely to be apprehended by the police in the first place. So one Australian study compared homeless young people with young people in Australia who were suffering from long-term unemployment. So even compared to this really disadvantaged group, homeless young people were six times more likely to be a victim of crime and they were also six times more likely to be accused of committing one. Now, we think this largely can be explained by correlation rather than causation because the risk factors that lead to youth offending and youth homelessness are shared. Those include really serious intergenerational issues like poverty, family violence and child abuse and neglect. Um, But becoming homeless does also seem to increase the chance of getting caught up in crime. We found another Australian study where they followed 35 young people and they found that prior to becoming homeless, only one of them had any involvement with the police. After they became homeless, 13, that was 33%, had some involvement with the police. And researchers put this down to the kind of trauma that young people experience while they're homelessness, police targeting, survival crime, and sometimes even negative peer influence. So addressing these kind of broader intergenerational 
educational issues requires significant structural reforms as well as huge investments in early intervention and diversionary programs. And we at Y Foundations 100% support these, but unfortunately, addressing them is well beyond the scope of our really short report, and it's definitely beyond the scope of this even shorter presentation. But it is something I hope we've got time in our discussion that we might be able to return to. So what we're going to focus on instead is another pathway, which is when young people are locked up because they are homeless. This happens when young people are first apprehended by the police, then the police decide to take court action. They grant them bail, but they put conditions on that bail, namely that they need suitable bail accommodation. And homeless people are unable to meet these conditions, which means that police refuse their bail. They're either put in detention overnight or over the weekend if the children's court is closed, or more likely, if the children's court's open, they'll appear before the court and the magistrate will impose a section 28 of the Bail Act, which allows them to impose an accommodation requirement on juveniles. Last financial year, there were 236 young people who were held in detention under Section 28 of the Bail Act. And these experiences of incarceration, however brief, can be deeply traumatising for young people and they can entrench them into the criminal justice system. Our interviewees suggested that many of the people who are getting caught on these Section 28s were homeless prior to coming into contact with the police, but some also suggested that young people can become homeless because of offending behaviour. So, for example, a young person might have committed a crime in the home and their family or relatives are refusing to let them come back into the home. Um, In these kind of circumstances, the police often take out AVOs or the family might even take out an AVO, which means that the young person is legally banned from returning home. So, as you're beginning to see here, the link between homelessness and incarceration is by no means straightforward. It's very cross-cutting and there are various ways that one feeds into the other. So, a third pathway that came up in our research is actually one that comes up after a young person is released on conditional bail. So they're released into the community, but with conditions attached to what they're able to do, such as meeting curfew, attending caseworker meetings, and staying at one specific address. Our interviewees said that homeless young people really struggle with bail conditions. This is particularly true if they're living in youth refuges, because these services are voluntary and service providers can't force a young person to stay at one address. So this makes it really likely that they'll breach bail and then they'll end up back in detention. Now, if the COVID-19 pandemic taught us anything, and I must admit it has taught us a lot of things, one of them is that bail is a good thing and that policing bail conditions doesn't prevent crime. So to keep the detention numbers down last year, the New South Wales Police and Children's Court let young people out on bail vastly more and they didn't revoke bail nearly as much. The youth custody population dropped by a quarter because the number of people in detention who are on remand is greater than the number who are actually sentenced to detention. And there was absolutely no increase in cautions or police warnings during that time. So we really need to be asking the question, is this preventing crime? If not, then why are these young people getting these quite complicated bail conditions? So that's why one of our recommendations in the report is that the New South Wales government should actually just remove the breach of bail as a condition for juveniles, as they have done in Victoria. Another recommendation from our report is that we expand the reach of the bail assistance line. Now, the bail assistance line is an after-hours hotline. It was introduced in 2010 following the Woods Royal Commission, which identified this issue of young people being imprisoned because they were homelessness. And it intervenes here at this point when the New South Wales police have decided to refuse bail. So the police now have to call the bail assistance line. And at that point, it gives the opportunity for the bail coordinators who work there to try and find alternatives to incarceration for the young people. So if they can't return home, 
they'll be looking to find them alternative places to stay. Unfortunately, a recent evaluation of the bail assistance line found that it had improved in the past decade, but it was still diverting less than 10% of the homeless young people who are being referred to it. Um, And the main reason for this low success rate was the lack of beds. And this is very much supported by our evaluations findings. So we've got some youth refuges like the amazing Taldamundi, which Nikki is going to speak about, who are receiving funding from the bail assistance line to help divert these young people from incarceration. They have fee-for-service beds that aren't reserved for youth justice but are available to them. But there currently are only 15 beds funded through this program and they're all in metro areas and this might have changed and I'm happy to be corrected because these policies are always moving. Our interviewees reported that those kind of programs can be really useful for some of the young people, particularly because they can provide the parents with a bit of respite if there's um, tension and family breakdown and then they might be more prepared or more supported to have their children home given that respite and that can really prevent kids unnecessarily entering the out-of-home care system which we want to avoid if it's if all possible. So that's why we're calling on the New South Wales government to increase the funding for the bail assistance line so that they can develop more of these SHS contracts. We also want them to be able to expand the scope of the bail assistance line and increase its hours so that it can support caseworkers at various points um, in the process to help homeless young people leave detention. This is because we spoke with youth justice caseworkers who said they were really struggling when they get homeless young people in for long periods of remand or if they're sentenced to detention because they can't do any good casework with them because they all they have to focus on is trying to find a place for them to stay when they leave detention. That saps all their all their casework energy all the time and they don't get to even touch on all the other issues which these young people often present with. So our interviewees were also really keen to note that youth refuges aren't suitable for many of the young people who are being held in detention. Some would benefit from a child protection response. This is so that they can access the more intensive evidence-based programs like intensive family therapy, treatment foster care or therapeutic residential care. The chart, We know that the current child protection response to this group is somewhat lacking to say the least. So you can find plenty of evidence to support that claim in a current report as well as our previous inquiry into the child protection and social services system, which both on the website if you want to dive deep. In our most recent report, we discussed a memorandum agreement that was signed between the New South Wales Youth Justice and Child Protection in 2013, and it was designed to clarify exactly who was responsible for these homeless adolescents being held simply because they had nowhere to go. Our interviewees found that this memorandum of understanding was useful, but they pointed out that it had huge gaps and was also out of date. So that's why, to come to a final point, we're also calling on the New South Wales government to develop a new interagency policy, one that covers all homeless youth in detention, both sentenced and unsentenced at various stages in this process. And the new policy needs to involve not just these child protection and youth justice workers, but also the youth homelessness services, the NGOs accommodating young people involved in the criminal justice system, all of those who have contact with these homeless young people in their journey through youth justice. This is the only way that we see these highly vulnerable adolescents are going to get the kind of therapeutic response that they really need if they are going to avoid unnecessary detention and all the trauma that comes with it and if they're going to get the support they need to recover from their trauma and thrive. So thanks, guys, and I will hand it over back to Pam to go back to the panel. 
Thank you so much um, for that overview, Lizzie. As you all can see, some very concerning issues, but very fixable issues that we can change. Um, This is not a system that's stuck. It's a system that can, with small changes, meaningful change, make a great impact on those young people who come in contact with the system. I'd like to come across to each panellist and ask each of you some questions based on your knowledge in the report. So I would like to throw to first Chichi. Your research looks into the social and welfare needs of young people who offend. What have you found about young people involved in the youth justice system and their housing needs? What, what have you seen through your time conducting your research? So in Istanbul of and g'day everyone. Um, yes, I'm Georgie Ravulo and great to have uh, the opportunity to join this conversation. Before I answer that question, I too would like to acknowledge that the traditional owners of the lands in which I'm joining in this panel. I'm uh, currently located on the lands of the Darawal people, acknowledge their past and present elders and also to acknowledge that the lands in which we are joining together are still considered stolen as sovereignty was never ceded. So it's within that context that I think a lot of our, our legal perspectives um, are are also founded, um, we have a real sort of uh, punitive approach to the way in which we deal with um, young people who offend, um, who who are also involved in the uh, homelessness space. And my, my major concerns really revolve around the, as Lizzie had aptly said from the report, the unmet social and welfare needs. So young people don't come as empty vessels into our respective spaces. They have journeyed in and across so many different spaces and places before they turn up in their interactions in the legal system uh, and or within the homelessness services. And our inability to effectively and meaningfully and sustainably engage our young people and their support networks and even our broader community context in which we operate. So similar to what uh, Lizzie was saying, that whole of government, but even the whole of community approach is lacking. And as a result, we continue to perpetuate the marginality of such young people and we continue to perpetuate uh, their disengagement across so many of our, our systems. Georgie, you're quite right. And it is those unmet social issues because we know young people just one day don't decide to do something we consider breaking the law because, you know, that's cool to do. I mean, sometimes you do have young people who experiment, but generally it's not a, I'm just going to go in there and do this thing and test the waters. There's usually unmet need, as you've said there. Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of approaches do government agencies need to take when thinking about young people who offend and how to increase collaboration with these young people? When we think about this notion of whole of government, this is where government departments proactively seek to embed and fund intergovernmental or interdepartmental responses. Um, it still boggles my mind to this day that we've got all these different systems in place. We've got the legal systems in place, the education, welfare, uh, and even health systems in place, but they tend not to really talk to each other. And that's a concern because we then create silos of responses across our government departments and we don't then nuance an effective and and sustainable response. But that also encourages us to think about, as I said before, this whole of community approach, which is this idea of ensuring that um, how we mobilise community resources, how we mobilise communities to not just be individuals and families, but 
promoting this sense of community and how we engage communities to be proactively involved and also how governments respond uh, is an important part. Just quickly to add, communities should also, by government departments, be seen as collaborators. Like what happened to this idea of systems being created to respond effectively to the individuals and families that interact with it? So I think that that's such an important part of being able to create some of those sustainable responses. Thank you. And you're definitely spot on. I know um, just recently at our AGM, we had an amazing human talk about how he had an experience of being in the detention system and how he got there was because his sense of community was those gangs in his neighbourhood that then led him in the wrong direction. So if we want you know, young people craving for a sense of community, so we need to work with communities and the department needs to, to collaborate with them closely because community is definitely one great answer to how we can support young people better. That's a really great segue to the the next question for you is what are the system gaps for young people who are offending and at risk of homelessness? One of the gaps is being able to really build capacity um, in and across our various the, the various spaces that young people interact with. So uh, some of the research that I've looked at and some of the work that I've done is around how do we consistently create effective capacity building responses for individual young people? But again, they don't they don't operate in silos. They're part of a broader support network. So how do we also build capacity and encourage their support networks to also be strong and resilient? The same sort of thing with um, broader uh, education systems or legal systems, how do we ensure that they are also building uh, upon the strengths associated with their interactions uh, with people from the community? So it really is about building capacity, focusing on those solutions within and not getting caught up in, again, that punitive discourse, that punitive approach, that paternalistic perspective on saying, you know, you've done bad things, so you now should be treated like that. So, And that just continues, again, to perpetuate the marginality that occurs within in these spaces. Thank you so much and some very great reflection on our system. I'd like to now throw across uh, to Nikki. Nikki, our report describes the relationship between homelessness and youth justice is going both ways. Um, So not one causes the other, um, as Lizzie uh, described beautifully earlier. We know that homelessness makes youth justice interaction more likely and being involved with youth justice also increases the chances of being homeless. How do you see this relationship Relationship playing out with young people on the ground in your service. Thanks, Pam. Um, so, given the instability of housing, um, or, you know, a firm grounding for a child or young person who is experiencing homelessness, they are, of course, at a greater risk of reoffending um, or of breaching their bail conditions. We all know that homeless young people experience high rates of mental health issues, alcohol and drug issues, family breakdown, and they have significant behavioural issues, etc. Our homeless children and young people involved in the youth justice system have even higher rates of psychological. Um, and behavioural disorders, that they're they're overall an even more vulnerable cohort. Our experience working with them tells us that they are they're hanging on to what most of us call normal life by the skin of their teeth, and a number of them have never known normal stability. So the leading cause of referrals to us is uh, you know for a lack of accommodation options due to juvenile or 
domestic and family violence. Um, for Tauda Mundi, this issue spans both genders, the entire range of family structures and all income brackets, with the majority of victims being a member of the same family. So 93% of our referrals last financial year came uh, with AVOs to protect a family member in their home. So it is vital that wraparound support is established early to prevent further family breakdown, offending or other risk-taking behaviours. Um, yeah, so the co- I'd say the comorbidity of homelessness and offending requires a targeted and specialised approach. It is vital when working with this cohort that support services have specific training um, relating to their high risk taking and often very complex needs. You know, often families are overwhelmed when their child is engaging in antisocial criminal behaviour, which unfortunately leads to homelessness for a young person. It is also crucial at this point for specialised services to intervene to assist children and young people to get back on track. Thanks, Nikki. And you did answer a little bit of my next question, but I want you to dig a little deeper for me. You've talked about wraparound support um, and targeted approaches and specialised training for your workers, mm-hmm. but can you tell us how Telda Mundi works with this group of young people and what sort of outcomes do you get? So when a young person obviously presents to your service, can you tell us a little bit of the life and a day of a clinician working with a young person who has these issues being in contact with the juvenile justice? What's that look like? Um, look, we are very fortunate at Tatamundi that we can offer a continuum of care within a variety of specialised housing programs and a family support program which caters to very specific needs. Without specialised and intensive support, the child or young person can enter a dangerous cycle of risk-taking behaviour leading to very negative outcomes. Um, Tatamundi can provide intensive casework support that works alongside their youth justice or bail case plan so that there's shared goals for the child. Look, a child or young person entering Tatamundi with youth justice support means that there is already at least one other support party involved in the ongoing care and case management of the young person. This is a big positive, a really big positive, because an increased support network dramatically increases the changes of the child or young person stabilising. And at Towden Monday, we work intensively and collaboratively with youth justice, particularly the Burwood and Blacktown justice officers, and of course, um, our friends over at the Bail Assistance Line. Due to COVID-19 options, for this cohort experiencing homelessness in the community were further limited and with many homes closing their doors. Um, This resulted in an increase of referrals to us. I mean, we operate three gender-neutral 24-7 crisis accommodation programs accessible to children and young people connected with the youth justice system or exiting youth detention. Our young offender programs offer up to a month's emergency accommodation with specialised offender support with a focus on safety and stability. In the last Last financial year, only six children or young people from our youth justice programs combined returned back to custody. The majority of children and young people we supported go on to further stability within homelessness services or are able to return to the family home. 90% of young people who entered our youth justice programs in 2021 uh, we're engaging in alcohol and drug misuse. This issue is usually compounded with complex mental health disorders um, where the needs of the young person required is very specialised, like a very specialised response. Taldemundi ensures children and young people are linked in early with key services to address this behaviour, um, as well as creating and supporting behaviour management support plans um, to ensure safety and overall wellbeing. Figures from you know our last financial year show that within our young offenders programs, children and young people supported are predominantly male 
it is interesting to think about the reasons why there is such a gender disparity within this cohort, um, although the core risk factors for violence may um, be equal across the gender. Um, there are, of course, unique risk factors which can um, expose or influence individual trajectories. Research suggests female offenders are more likely to report abuse histories and self-harming behaviours, leading them to seek and receive help earlier. Despite being male-heavy in terms of our referrals, we have seen a gender increase in females being referred to our young offenders crisis programs in the last five years. Nikki, numbers are increasing. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that's a good next question for you. What systematic changes need to occur to help young people who are exiting juvenile justice and prevent them from becoming homeless? Your numbers are increasing. What, what has to happen in the system? for this to change. Following on from the six recommendations in the Y Foundation's report, all of which I agree with, we have seen an overall increase in children and young people entering our um, specialised offender programs with underlying intellectual and cognitive disabilities. We need an increase in resourcing to enable psychologists or other specialised key workers um, to engage in outreach, out outreach support to access children and young people whilst they're in custody in order to link them with the appropriate support service provider for their exit. With the right support, families can be provided with early access to financial and um, psychosocial support to help them long-term. There were 65% of young people referred to our offender support programs were under the age of 16. So the under-16s cohort requires a distinctive and specialised approach response. So Taudamundi is seeing an increasing number of under-16s experiencing homelessness who engage in criminal activity. And there needs to be an increase in funding to support homelessness services to combat this issue and to assist the process of offering temporary respite to families in an effort to return children and young people home whenever it's safe to do so. Every family who has a child involved in the youth justice system, they should have priority access to intensive family support services or other support services, specialised training with young offenders, ideally referral um, at their first offence. Um, this will allow key early intervention and prevention strategies to take place, reducing the escalation of offending behaviour for the young person and it will provide a platform for families to gain better understanding of offending behaviours, patterns um, and responses targeted specifically to their family circumstance. Thanks, Nikki. So essentially working with families at the start, not when it becomes problematic 12, 24 months down the track, get in early, work with the families, work with the young person. That's where you're seeing your most success. Yeah, it seems really simple, doesn't it? But we're in a system that doesn't always allow for that. People don't always know how to get families into these support avenues at, at the beginning of these issues starting in order to start diverting young people away from the system. Well, what I'd like to do now, thank you, Nikki, and thank you, Jochi, for your, um, your comments. I'd like to open up to the wider panel, and the wider panel today is Elizabeth, Nikki and Jochi, and I'm the moderator today. We've, the the Q&A has gone nuts, to be honest with you. So I'm going to try my best to answer everybody's questions in this and throw to the wider group. I might start off with Nikki. There's a great question in here, which I think those listening remotely would really like answered. And Nikki, you'd be a good one for this because it sort of hangs on to what you've spoken about. But how do you work with young people and family when there's AVOs in place? How does that work with your intensive family support? 
So um, we've got a respite accommodation placement where a young person can come and stay with us until their AVO conditions have expired. And it would depend on the restrictions that are on the AVO, um, whether it be residential or behavioural based. And there's a lot of mediation that, that goes on and a lot of having individualised goals for a parent and a young person um, and having collective goals, working on a transition to home plan, helping cushion some of the communication between a parent and a young person and and helping a parent to understand where the child or young person is coming from and the reasons why they are doing the way that what what they're doing um just just to try and help repair that relationship so just to prevent further family breakdown for that for that family great nikki so there's no way to avoid the abo it's really just working around the parameters of it absolutely creating trust and connection re-establishing relationships working in that real trauma-informed framework terrific so i might throw to Travis. Travis is asking about do we have a sense of whether the New South Wales government is open or keen to implement any, all of the recommendations or too early to tell yet? I guess that's sort of an answer for me. I know I'm the moderator that um, I've been um, having the most contact with the third party government and um, politicians that, you know, have this area in their remit. There is a huge interest to meet with us. We've already met with the Department of Communities and Justice um, and discussed where it falls into their control to change some of this stuff and where it falls into um, the justice team's remit. I know Paul O'Reilly's moved on from his role temporarily and is acting up and we'll be meeting with the new team in the next, I think it's in a week or two's time, Lizzie, isn't it? It just had to be pulled back, I think, due to very new staff there. They're trying to get their feet on the ground being um, new in their roles or that reshuffle internally. So we will meet with them and there are some very clear actions that are quite reasonable that we can work together with the juvenile justice team on and we've had great interest from ministers um, who advocate in this area as well. So yes, Travis, we've had great engagement on this and we're very proud of the partnerships and relationships we currently have with those departments um, and their eagerness to to support this work and really make a meaningful difference for those who are going through the system. Um, I've got a question here that I'll throw to the group. The team at Waverley Council has a question. Would you be able to provide some good examples of whole of community approaches to respond to young people's needs in particular localities. Sure. Thanks for the question. So I've um, prepared some uh, resources actually that I'm just going to quickly profile, if I may. So um, this is this is this idea of this holistic response. So I was invited by Judge Peter Johnston, who just recently became the Chief Magistrate of the New South Wales Local Court, uh, to do a presentation a couple of years ago on how we can provide holistic approaches to young offenders, so young people who offend. So this paper really looks at how do we create uh, systemic and whole of government, whole of community responses as part of our our meeting of the significant social and welfare needs associated with uh, young people who offend. The other thing that I do mention in this particular document is this program called Youth on Track, which Youth Justice New South Wales continues to run. Now, this initiative works again across different government departments, and this model is grounded in a community-based approach. So the ongoing research suggests that our not-for-profits play a major role in ensuring that when we are responding to 
to the social and welfare needs of young people who offend and who are homeless, we are able to then effectively respond more proactively. So it's not just such a statutory agencies, but also the advocacy work and the collaboration that happens amongst the not-for-profits. The other thing I just want to quickly profile, this came from my previous research, is a toolkit that was developed on looking at a case management model for young people with complex needs. So this is specifically an overview of a case management model that was responding directly with government departments, New South Wales Police, Youth Justice, and community-based initiatives to ensure that we're responding proactively across the community with those respective needs. And lastly, I also put together, because previous to becoming an academic, I was a manager of a youth accommodation service in Southwest Sydney. And so I put together this paper called More Than a Warm Bed and a Hot Meal. And so this also looks at this idea of holistic approaches to youth homelessness through short-term accommodation. So again, how do we mobilise models that, again, create more of a whole of community, whole of government response? Very much resonates with what Nikki was sharing previously in regards to those particular needs, early intervention prevention. But even those that may be already entrenched in the system, how do we actually continue to, to provide buy-in more broadly? Terrific. Thank you so much. All right. So we'll go to our next question. Lauren is interested in what system responses recommendations have come from Y foundations or panellists for Aboriginal young people to stop over-representation in our system. Lizzie, I might throw to you on that one. Yeah, sure, Pam. There are a lot of recommendations that recently came out of the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry into the over-representation of First Nations people in custody that I'd recommend that you go and look straight to their report. We kind of couldn't cover them all in our report, but did say, you know, see above. Some of the ones that stand out to me in the youth justice area were um, removing the number of cautions that a person can receive because, you know, currently it's it's three before they have to have a court response. Removing the, the currently we know that diversion is quite good, I mean, relatively speaking, in youth justice, like 53% of low level offenders are reverted from court uh, and that's ideal but that Indigenous young people are less likely to be diverted from and there needs to be more research on why that's the case but also more efforts to make sure that that's addressed and that, we sh- that that's not evidence of discrimination by um, police officers that they're being sent to court and basically entering the system whereas non-Indigenous people are being diverted from the system. Um, obviously and I see another question in here about um, raising the age. Yes we we 100% support that. Under 14s should not be in prisons, and that would go a long way, I think, to helping uh, the overrepresentation of Aboriginal young people in youth detention. Because if you look at the under 14s, the percentage who are Indigenous is truly uh, horrifying. And as well as obviously the broader structural changes that we have touched on throughout the report and then just funding. In our report, we recommend Aboriginal-specific bail accommodation. The evidence from the bail assistance line evaluation found that the service wasn't working as well with um, Indigenous young people, so that's why we're very keen on making sure that there are culturally specific programs that are in the right areas to ensure that they're getting diverted from unnecessary detention. Yeah, and then just more of the the kind of 
programs that Mickey and, and Chirurgy have discussed for supporting young people to young offenders in, in other ways. Thank you so much, Lizzie. We've got another question here, which is a great lead on from Sharon. Young people as young as 10 years of age will legally be charged and sentenced to detention centre. How can this form of punishment be an effective way to support a young person or in this case, a child? Is this a way of providing a home for a child? So I know he answered a little bit there about we just, we don't believe it is. We we definitely agree with you, Sharon. It's not appropriate and it's not what should um, occur. But I'd love to throw to Nikki. Nikki, when you see some of these young people who are presenting to Tel Mundi at that young age, because you talked about the age was getting quite young, is this punishment effective? No, absolutely not. We don't believe in a punitive response ever being effective, especially at that age. Um, cognitively and developmentally, it just doesn't work. They don't respond. What what we do see firsthand, the relation that the majority of clients and young people, they, they tend to grow up and they're, they're, they cease their offending behaviours. And then they can do that to make positive changes as long as they have the right care and support in place. So it's just around getting them connected with other service providers in the community, getting them to support um, and, and having that holistic wraparound, strength-based, that's where, that's where you see the outcomes. Thanks, Nikki. And very right. There's another question here. How will your research and findings be presented or used to assist in advocacy for policy changes and government changes to better support young people? Lizzie and I will partner quite heavily on holding the departments and stakeholders accountable to provide a solution for these young people. That's how we're going to do that. Um, it was from an anonymous attendee. So if you're still out there, we promise you um, we're taking this seriously. We're very proud of this work. It's taken us how long, Lizzie, to produce this? Is it three years, almost four? Well, there were multiple reports, but yeah. There was a prior research a few years ago and it's built on from that. So we're committed. We're here for the long haul. Um, and Lizzie um, and the team and myself will definitely hold those accountable and continue to advocate for those, those changes. We've got another question here from Daniel. As someone who deals with the fallout of Section 28 all the time, what other responses do you think would help young people? Bail assistance line is a stopgap. What happens to those young people who can't return to family ever? We push them into an already stretched SHS system and pray for medium-term placement. We put them on the waiting list for public housing and try to get them into the private rental market. They're either on the cusp or over 16. DCJ aren't interested. Do do we think there is a place for a more long-term accommodation response funding specifically for this cohort of young people? I feel fear throwing more money at SHS while it is needed will still leave these young people behind, particularly in regional and remote areas. Lizzie, I might throw to you. I, I know what you're going to say. I'll throw to yourself. Yeah, um, thank you for the question, Daniel. We completely agree and I think we make really clear in our report and I hope I made it relatively clear that we definitely don't see SHS as a solution for long-term and for those high-needs young people who you mentioned. The services can really benefit, particularly if there is family conflict that has the potential to be resolved, but if it's a serious case of family abuse and neglect and there is no scope for reunification, we really do think that the child protection system should step in, even if that's a 16-year-old. And we've had these conversations when we were revising the um, 12- to 15-year-old homelessness policy with DCJ recently, and they have a new line in the new policy that says age shouldn't be a barrier. So they really should provide support. But the reality is a lot of these 
16, 17 year olds probably don't want to go into a foster care placement. So we do need a range of alternatives for these. And yeah, Pam can talk to you about the kind of stuff that we're we're pushing for for this group because we are very aware of the lack of services. And that's why we recommend that there's a lot, we need a lot more of those intensive therapeutic placements for some young people, including drug and alcohol rehab, mental health facilities, all of the kinds of stuff where they can really get that that help that they need, particularly in rural and regional areas, because you are so right, the response is just not there. Yeah, we're also working on a project at the moment that's about to be submitted to DCJ and we'll do some heavy advocacy work around it, but requesting medium-term 24-7 accommodation be funded across the state because it's where the biggest hole in the homelessness continuum exists. When young people are trying to exit the homeless system, they go into specialist homelessness services and then sort of get stuck in a cycle at the around the age of 15, 16, because unless you're quite independent and you've got your yourself together, there's nothing to help you catch up to your chronological age, help you deal with your trauma, re-engage with school. There's there's really nothing unless you go to the out-of-home care system. And we know, as Lizzie said, not all of those options are appropriate unless out-of-home care is appropriate. So we're advocating really hard on that at the moment um, and we'll have a publication release next month around our stance. We've heavily consulted with our members and those in the sector that work with these young people. Um, and this will be one of our other biggest pieces of work next year we'll be pushing really heavily for. So it, it's on its way, we promise. Um, it, we just don't have enough hours in a day and COVID slowed us down. But now COVID's letting up, fingers and toes crossed, we'll go gung-ho and really push for this stuff because it's needed. It's without a doubt, you're all very right. It's 100% needed. I've got another question here um, for the group. So we might just ask two more questions and wrap it up. Daniel wanted to know who funds Telda Monday's Youth Justice Service, Nikki. Is it unfunded? Is it self-funded? So the, the Bail Assistance Line program and our Crisis Youth Justice program, are they're, they're funded by the Youth Justice. So it's a, it's a fee for service for those programs and we work really closely with other service providers in the area as well just to get the best outcome for the young person. We've got two, we've got two youth justice programs at Taldamundi. Um, so we've got the Bail Assistance Line program which supports 30 children and young people last financial year and our Youth uh, Justice Crisis Accommodation program which is in part partnership with Marist 180 and so they offer the Western Sydney crisis bed for 13 placements of youth justice supervised children and um, we have the Northern Sydney placement which offers the same number of placements for the year so that's for 28 day placements. Thanks Nikki. Just one last comment from the group and we might tie it up Mark says, in another life, I was in uniform in Sydney when we came across younger persons on the street late at night. Our first response was addressing the social concerns rather than a criminal justice immediate response. As such, we utilised Mission Beat and the Selvos a lot to attend and speak with the young person rather than taking them into protective custody. We do not seem to have that sort of support within Western Sydney, so more people are left to drift on the street rather than being identified and supported. Thanks, Mark, for that reflection, and it's nice to have someone who's an ex-cop to um, reflect on that and understand the human side of these amazing young people. Well, today, everybody, we have discussed some of the complexities of the system. We've gone through our recommendations at Y Foundations. We've had the amazing Professor Chichi present on the systems. Nikki from Teldamundi talk um, about the young person's experience and the clinical experience. And we've had Dr Lizzie Watt, our Senior Research and uh, Policy Manager at Y Foundation 
Nations also talk about the advocacy, research and policy side of things. We thank you all for watching and being um, a part of this really important presentation and we're more than happy to be contacted offline to discuss further. You can reach us at admin, A-D-M-I-N, at yfoundations, with an S on the end, .org.au. If you would like to reach out to anybody who was on the panel today or talk with myself about any concerns that you are seeing in your local area or any policy work in this area you would like to partner with us on, Lizzie and the team would love to hear from you. I will leave it there. Thank you to our amazing guest speakers. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you to the Y Foundation's team behind the scenes. And please take this information, start having the conversations on the ground, meet with your local MP, get it on the agenda, and let's make the world a little bit of a better place for young people in that come in contact with the juvenile justice system who are experiencing homelessness. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Young and Homeless podcast. See you next time.